Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, uh, let's pray together for a brief moment. Uh, God, we pray that during this time, uh, you would do more than instruct us, but you would, uh, you would form our hearts, you would change our perspectives, you would help us to see uh, the world as you see it, you would help us to see our life circumstance as you see it, you would help us to see our responses to things as you see it. And in this season, as we talk about fear, uh, we know fear is such a powerful force in all of our lives, and we, um, we can't overcome it simply by our own will, uh, but we need your help. And so as your word comes to us today, may it come with more than information, but um, by way of the Holy Spirit, may it come with power, power to open our eyes, power to help us to see, power to give us the gift of faith to trust in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, This spring, we've been spending uh, basically the season looking at what the Bible says about fear. And uh, this series is going to conclude on Easter Sunday. Believe it or not, there's probably a lot more we could say about fear because the Bible says a lot more about fear. But uh, we're kind of getting to the last sermons on fear. And what I wanted to do is uh, just look at what some of the Psalms say about fear. Uh, for the basic reason of just giving us the spiritual tools of what we can turn to in the Bible when we are going through the experience of fear or anxiety or worry. And so last week what we did is we looked at Psalm 3 and we saw uh, some of the things that David sang, some of the things that David composed as he was being pursued by Absalom, his son. And today's another psalm from David, Psalm 23, which I think is one of the most famous psalms in the Bible. And even if you're not a regular reader of the Bible, even if you're not a regular churchgoer, I think chances are you've probably heard a reference to this psalm in some fashion or some form. Uh, One of my memories of this psalm being used in the public sphere is actually after 9-11. I remember George W. Bush, he's addressing the nation. And at the end of that uh, address on TV, uh, he read from Psalm 23. You know, one of the things that I mentioned last week is that Fear is so powerful that it can make us be uh, people that run away or escape from things rather than face that which is dangerous. But a lot of times we have to face that which is dangerous. We have to face that which makes us afraid if we're going to grow as people, but more importantly, if we are going to be faithful to the calling that God has given us. In the Bible, Joshua, I think, is a good example of this. Joshua, he succeeded Moses in terms of leadership, and he was tasked with leading the people of Israel into the land of Canaan, Uh, a land that was very dangerous. Uh, They sent spies into that land and the report came back and they said, oh, these people are large and the cities are fortified and if we go into this land, essentially we're going to die. And they saw this land and it looked dangerous. And so their conclusion is, let's escape from what God has promised us. Let's escape from our rightful inheritance in terms of what God said he would give to us. And let's go back to Egypt, to the place where we were enslaved. But sometimes if you want to move forward, you have to take a step of faith. Sometimes if you want to move forward, you have to be able to overcome the fear 
of certain dangers in your life. One of the great things about the psalm is, you know, it doesn't give us tools to avoid evil. Uh, If you look at the language, it says we're going to walk through it, right? One commentator by the name of Derek Kidner, he summarizes the psalm, I think, in a very helpful way, and he says, depth and strength underlie the simplicity of the psalm. Its peace is not escape. Its contentment is not complacency. There is readiness to face deep darkness and imminent attack, and the climax reveals a love which homes toward no material goal but to the Lord himself. We spent a lot of time talking about fear, but we should also think about the positive aspect of fear, which is courage. Uh, the flip side of it. We need to be more courageous, and courage is a biblical virtue, and courage is something that we need more of. In the Bible, uh, it has very little to do with individual strength. It has very little to do with your skills, your giftedness, your size, but courage has more to do with faith. Do you trust that God is with you? Do you trust that God is powerful? Do you trust that God is good? If you believe in these things, that is ultimately our source of courage. So you see, if you want to follow Jesus, sometimes it does actually mean you have to face danger. Sometimes it does mean you have to do things that maybe are a little bit frightening. Now, I don't necessarily mean like extreme dangers because, you know, the reality is there are believers in this world who live in uh, places of the world that persecutes Christians, and if you believe uh, in Jesus Christ, if you preach the gospel in the streets, there are people who will kill you or do something horrible to you. That's, of course, not everyone's calling, and especially we who live in America likely won't face things like that, but there are still going to be moments and opportunities where maybe we flee uh, from a certain thing because of fear. You know, I think in a digital world, uh, you know, one of the uh, maybe unintended consequences of everything being so digitized in terms of our communication is, uh, at least to me, in my perspective, it seems like people don't really confront one another to their face as much, right? Uh, so therefore, if you're going to break up with somebody and if you've been in a long relationship with them, these days it's not unheard of to hear, oh, you did it by text message. Uh, maybe I'm old-fashioned. I think that's inappropriate, right? I think that's a little bit cowardly. I think you should say it to somebody's face. Uh, if you quit a job, uh, I don't know if this is acceptable in like workplaces anymore. I imagine it's still not, but if you're to quit a job or something like that, you probably don't do it by sending your boss a text message, right? Maybe you have a meeting, schedule a meeting, and say, hey, I'm going to resign. Here's my two weeks' notice. Uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, my wife actually mentioned this story yesterday, but she said she noticed, like, uh, you know, she's a teacher, and she teaches, like, elementary school uh, age kids, and, you know, there's a little bit of drama going on amongst the students, and one person says something bad about the other person, and instead of that other person saying, hey, I don't like the way uh, you talked about me or the name that you called me, what this other person did who received the name calling said, oh yeah, he gathered his friends and basically said, hey, let's call this guy another name. And there's de- never direct confrontation of like, hey, I don't like what you call me, but now you kind of have like these, you know, tribes forming. And maybe that's a good <laughs> analogy of what's happening in our society today. Uh, I think courage is really important just for good relationships and I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities where fear is going to give us a temptation to escape. Uh, Even in the context of personal relationships, there might be something that you have to confront somebody about. And if you don't have courage, uh, most likely you'll resort to some of these secondary tactics that aren't going to be uh, helpful or beneficial. I think living in New York is a struggle for most people uh, because of the cost, right? Uh, New York is not an easy place to live in. It's very expensive, and especially those of you who have children, uh, I'm sure 
you think about that a lot. Should I stay in New York or should I not? And especially as they get to the age of like kindergarten, right? And you start to think about schools. I'm sure uh, as parents get to that age, you're starting to think, oh, this is what it's going to cost uh, to stay in New York with children. And maybe there's a lot of fear there, right? But I think if you want to be faithful, it's not to say that you have to stay in New York, but if you want to be faithful, the way that you make your decisions is not, uh, can, I, can I afford this or is this going to yield the best life? But you say, where is God calling me? Where is God calling me? Because if he's calling me to New York, then I have to trust that he's going to make a way. I've always thought that staying, I say this to people a lot, especially in uh, pastoral ministry and especially to like, you know, church planters that come to New York. I'll often say, I think 50% of the mission in New York is just to stay in New York <laughs> as long as you can. Uh, now, I'm sure there are real fears out there about, you know, cost of living and there are legitimately people who cannot afford to uh, live in New York and stay in New York. But the point is, uh, the temptation is going to be to make our decisions based on fear, right? And not based on calling. And when we make our decisions based on fear and not based on calling, and when we're not willing to face maybe dangerous, I mean, it's not dangerous situation, but dangerous to us, I guess, situations, uh, we won't be faithful. We're just not going to be faithful. And so, even though we're not in the position of David here, where people are probably literally trying to kill him, I think we still have our own dangers that we face and we need courage to face them and walk through them if we want to be faithful. Now, if this psalm helps us face what the commentator says, face deep darkness and imminent attack, what's fascinating about the psalm is it does it in a very unexpected way. If someone were to tell you, you were going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and you were going to face attack and evil, I think you'd expect a different metaphor, right? I mean, you saw that metaphor in Psalm 3 when it said, the Lord is my shield. You might expect it to say, the Lord is my warrior, my something, right? Something to that effect. But this entire psalm is based on the metaphor of a shepherd, of a shepherd. <laughs> the Lord is my shepherd is how it begins. And if you follow the train of thought in the psalm, this is the reason why David eventually would say, I will fear no evil. Right? Because the Lord is my shepherd. So why does the fact that the Lord is our shepherd, how does that really help us face our fears and walk in the midst of danger with a kind of confidence that uh, only the Lord can give? Well, that's what we're going to explore in this psalm today. Now, most of us, I'm, I'm pretty sure, I'm like almost 100% sure, most of us don't have any direct knowledge of what it's like to be a shepherd but this is really an, an appropriate metaphor for somebody like David because uh, some of you may know David actually was a shepherd. Uh, he was the youngest of eight children, and I think back in those days, it would usually be the youngest person who would have to do the work of a shepherd. Uh, so he, he actually worked as a shepherd before he was a king, and so he knows the life of a shepherd. He knows the kind of relationship a shepherd has with his sheep, and the job of a shepherd is essentially twofold. The first thing a shepherd has to do is provide for their sheep. Make sure they eat, make sure they drink, make sure they can live. The second thing a shepherd has to do is protect their sheep from dangerous predators. Even though David was the youngest of eight, and uh, you know, it's a little bit comical when you read the story. He's so small in stature that Goliath, when he initially sees David uh, as being the person who's going to fight him, he disdains him. He's like, what, this little guy, he's going to fight me? What's he going to do? And uh, David actually learned a lot about courage through his work as a shepherd. 
There's a place in 1 Samuel 17 where he's talking to Saul and he says, you know, I used to, I used to serve, uh, be, a, be a shepherd. I used to serve my father in that way. And uh, here's what he says. And when there came a lion or a bear, and uh, this lion or a bear took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, struck him, and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine, referring to Goliath, shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. This little guy, David, right? Killing lions and bears. And David says this after, right? Other men, other Israelites look at Goliath and they run away in fear. They say, he's too big. I'm going to die. He's going to destroy me. But David has enough courage to face him. And he partially gains that courage through his experience as being a shepherd and protecting his sheep. So he knows the work of a shepherd. He knows what a shepherd does. And he knows how important a shepherd is for the livelihood of his sheep. And when he thinks about the Lord, when he thinks about his dangers, when he thinks about his life, he thinks about the Lord being his shepherd. I debated whether to split the sermon into two parts because there's a lot in here, but uh, I decided not to do that, which means that in this sermon, I'm going to try to pack a lot into a small amount of time. There's five things here, five, and I'm going to be very brief on each five, but there's five things in here I think um, we can learn about who the Lord is through this metaphor of a shepherd. The first thing is the Lord, as our shepherd, is somebody who provides David says, I shall not want in verse 1. And basically what he's saying is, I have no lack because everything that I have needed has been provided for. And the next part tells us what the Lord provides. The Lord provides rest. The Lord provides water. The Lord provides restoration, protection, friendship, presence. But this statement, I shall not want, is an important statement because what it does is it touches upon desire. Desire. Desire is what I think fuels a lot of our fears. It's not just uh, ordinary desire, but it's this ultimate desire that we have. If your ultimate desire is for something like respect, something like popularity, security, control, uh, money, any of these things, if that is your ultimate desire, I think what you're going to find is a lot of your fears probably revolve around those things. And when something threatens to take away that which you desire the most, that's when we start to get anxious. And that's when our fears turn into some negative behaviors. Uh, you know, a while back, I mentioned, uh, I saw this study, and I don't know how uh, accurate this study is, but there was a study done uh, studying general anxiety disorder. And basically what the study found was uh, surprising to the researchers. They found that wealthier countries, wealthier nations, tended to exhibit greater anxiety than poorer countries. And the reason why they were surprised by that is because they said, you know, shouldn't nations that have to deal with uh, things like hunger or political turmoil or poverty or the lack of adequate health care, shouldn't people in those nations be much more anxious? But that's not what they found. They found uh, most of the first world countries, most of the wealthier nations, are the ones who had a greater degree of anxiety. And, you know, they didn't really offer an explanation as to why that is, but if the data is accurate, uh, my guess would be people from wealthier nations probably have more desires. You have a desire for a certain level of status. You have a desire for a certain 
I don't know, size of apartment, you have a desire for a certain kind of fulfillment through your work, you have a desire for a certain kind of education for your children, you have a desire for a certain kind of uh, consumer products, what, whatever it is, uh, we have all these desires and they soon become ultimate desires and our anxiety you'll find revolves around these things. There's something that the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4 when he says, he has learned to be content in all circumstances. All circumstances, in plenty or in hunger, he has learned to be content. Now, if you could get to that level of contentment, that whether you have much, whether you have little, you feel content, can you imagine what that might do to your fears? I imagine true contentment would make most of our fears fade away. Second point, the Lord, as our shepherd, he guides us. Uh, sheep are not known to be intelligent animals. Uh, they're not like dogs. You know, my family, we have a dog. Dogs are pretty smart, actually. Uh, sheep are not very intelligent. Uh, there are you know, famous stories out there about how sheep would literally walk off a cliff because they're following <laughs> another sheep who doesn't know where that sheep is going and walks off a cliff, and therefore the entire flock follows that leader, and they all fall off a cliff and they all die. Uh, I can't see my dog doing that, right? But if sheep are like that, it's imperative that sheep have good leaders, good guides, people who will lead them to life, people who will lead them to green pastures and to still waters. What's interesting is that the Bible doesn't say uh, we are like dogs. The Bible says we are like sheep. Uh, uh, without a shepherd, uh, we don't know which direction to go. Now that's the concerning part, I think, of uh, Western culture is it's very hyper-individualistic, and it basically says, no, let the individual decide which way is the right way to go. Uh, if we are like sheep, then I think basically our culture puts way too much trust in our abilities to lead ourselves and to direct ourselves towards goodness and towards life, and therefore we might be like a sheep and we're putting ourselves in a position of walking off a cliff without even really knowing it. Uh, if you want to experience rest, or if we want to experience rest and life and restoration, uh, the metaphor of a sheep basically says we need somebody to take us there, to lead us there, to guide us there. The Lord as our shepherd, he is the one who will lead us towards greener pastures and life-giving waters. Uh, now, by the way, I read something by a pastor who, uh, he actually worked as a shepherd for eight years, and then he wrote this little thing reflecting on Psalm 23. And, you know, he had some really interesting insights as a shepherd. Uh, one of the things he says is uh, it's really hard to get sheep to lie down. One of the reasons why it's hard to get them to lay down is because uh, unless they feel comfortable, unless they feel safe, because they're very timid creatures and maybe they're very fearful creatures, he says unless they feel like all fear is gone and unless they feel really safe, they won't lie down. And the only one who can make them feel like that is their shepherd. What the psalm is pointing to, the Lord is our shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Um, if what that shepherd is saying is true, then he's the one that makes us feel safe and he's the one who casts fear aside so that we can lay down in these green pastures. The third thing, the Lord as our shepherd, he restores our soul. Uh, that's what we see in the beginning of verse 3. The same commentator I mentioned before, Derek Kidner, he says, this phrase restores my soul. It actually has another level of meaning. Uh, the language here conveys a lost sheep being brought back into the fold. So it's more a picture of repentance. If he's right, then the Lord as our shepherd, what that's saying is 
The Lord is our shepherd. He pursues the lost. He pursues sheep that have gone astray, and he sets them upon the right path. And that would make sense with the next line in that he leads me in paths of righteousness. Now, that's a level of love that's, I think, worth reflecting upon. It's a bit like the story of the prodigal son who runs away to pursue a lifestyle that is ultimately going to lead to self-destruction, but a parent who deeply loves their child is going to want to pursue them and to try to redeem them and to try to rescue them. Uh, I think all of us have had, well, some of us have probably had seasons in our spiritual walk in our lives where we have completely run away from the Lord where we don't want to go to church anymore, we don't want to uh, read the Bible anymore, we don't want to pray anymore. Uh, I'm sure there are many people, many of us, who have had seasons like that. And uh, if you um, maybe have experienced uh, God's pursuing love, then you know what it means when it says God restores our souls. God pursued us and brought us back to him. Uh, And even if you haven't had seasons like that, I think all of us probably have had days like that where we feel like we are straying from the Lord. And eventually, when we experience that God uh, brings us back to him, uh, we experience his pursuing love. Fourth, uh, the Lord, as our shepherd, he comforts. Uh, Verse 4 says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Uh, The instruments used for comfort here are of protection and of control. A rod is something that a shepherd would use to fend off these predators, and a staff would be something used, I guess, kind of like to control the sheep, to round them up, to uh, bring them together. Now, the scenario for this is walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and you know that Hebrew word is a little bit hard to translate, but it conveys a sense of darkness. And so uh, what you want to picture here, what you want to imagine, if you are a sheep and you are walking through the valleys, valleys are not supposed to be like these wonderful places, but valleys are actually in the ancient world. And uh, for Israelites, it was considered to be very dangerous places. It was the places where you were the most vulnerable. Sudden wouldn't, wouldn't pierce in through the valleys because you might be surrounded by cliffs. So it's a dark place. And if you are a sheep and if you are walking through this dark valley, you don't know where predators are going to come and attack you, right? Uh, It's dark. You don't know whether you are uh, going to head off, uh, fall off a a cliff of some sort. And, you know, in that kind of scenario, the only thing that would really bring you comfort in terms of walking through the valley of the shadow of death is to know that you have a shepherd and the shepherd will protect you from all of your enemies, from all the predators, and to know that your shepherd knows the way and he will lead you through safety. If you trust your shepherd, there is no reason to be afraid. The only reason David can say, I will fear no evil, is because the Lord is his shepherd. Fifth, I know I'm moving through these fast. Um, The Lord as our shepherd, he dwells among us. He dwells with us. He lives with us. Uh, There are a few places that this is mentioned in the psalm, but it's also a common refrain in other parts of the Bible. You know, when someone is afraid in the Bible, God usually doesn't say, well, let me take care of X, Y, and Z and put you in a better situation or a better circumstance, and then you won't be afraid anymore. The common refrain that God usually responds with to somebody who is afraid is, "I I will be with you. My presence will be with you. That's just where the source of courage is found. It's a knowing that God is present, that God is with us. You know, I encourage all of you to, uh, to volunteer and to teach in children's ministry once in a while because I think it'll actually mm, deepen your faith and make you better communicators of your faith. 
The reason I say that is children oftentimes ask the best questions, but their questions are so simple, but they're so hard to answer. Let me give you an example. Uh, my daughter once asked, how do I know God is real? Because uh, I can't see him. Simple question, right? How do you answer that to a child? Uh, that's a really good question too, and I'm sure a question that many adults have. How do you know God is real when you can't really see him? Well, um, I guess my response would be, this is not how I answered her. I was like, well, <laughs> I don't know. Let me think about it. Let me think about how to give you the answer. But I thought about it. I think this is what I would say. Uh, you know, in my town, uh, one of the things that they're trying to do is they're trying to make it safer for pedestrians because I guess there have been a, like, a lot of hit and runs in my town. And so the, you know, the chief of police and the mun municipality, what, what they're doing is they're putting these like undercover police officers at these various intersections. And when they see cars running through a stop sign and not stopping, what they'll do is they'll pull them over and give them a ticket, right? Now the police, you, you can't really see them. Uh, they're not noticeable. You can't recognize them. They're unseen by pedestrians. They're unseen by cars, but their presence is there. And because their presence is there, it makes a difference. It, it matters. It so theoretically makes it safer, right? Now, I, I do understand the analogy definitely breaks down somewhere because that's not the same thing as who God is. But uh, essentially, even though you can't see the presence of God, God's presence matters. The fact that he's there matters, whether we see it or not, whether we believe it or not. And God's presence especially matters when we are walking in danger in the valley of the shadow of death. And if that's something, uh, I mean, it is there, but if whether we see it or not, if we believe that he is with us, I think that does something to us in terms of our fears. We will fear no evil. God is with us. There is a lot in the psalm worth reflecting on. Uh, but this shepherding metaphor it gives us at least those five things to, to think about, right? The Lord, he provides, he guides, he restores, he comforts, and he dwells. But then you get to verse five and the metaphor changes. And it says here, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. This is no longer the language of a shepherd because a shepherd doesn't do this for his sheep. This is now the language of friendship. This is the language of deep intimacy, deep fellowship. Derek Kidner, that commentator, says it's one thing to survive a threat, but it's one another thing to turn that threat into victory and triumph. Verse 5 here is a picture of triumph. It's not about being able to just walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but verse 5 is about turning that valley of darkness and death into a mountain of light and resurrection. That comes, friends, only by way of an intimate friend who would also be our good shepherd. That comes by way of Jesus Christ. Gospel of John, I think, connects a few things for us. Uh, first in John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Uh, I don't think shepherds were particularly known for doing that, for dying for their sheep. Uh, sure, they provided for them, they guided them, they restored them, they comforted them, they dwelt among them. Uh, but we didn't have this sixth point where uh, shepherds lay down their lives for their sheep. But when Jesus says he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for us, I think he's introducing something a little bit new. 
he's introducing the kind of sacrificial love that is very unique for Jesus as our good shepherd. He is willing to lay his down, life down for us. Why? John 15, I think, completes it when he says this, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You see both themes in the psalm, right? Shepherding, friendship. You see the fulfillment in the Gospel of John, right? He is our good shepherd, and he calls us friends because he lays down his life for us. You see, Psalm 23, it comes to a climax in Jesus because Jesus is the shepherd, and he is the friend who would ultimately lay down his life for us. And you know what that, that actually does? That intensifies everything that David says in this psalm. Yes, the Lord as our shepherd provides. Jesus provides uh, far exceedingly than David probably ever imagined because he provides a glorious inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. That's what it says in 1 Peter 1. Jesus guides us where? To the very loving arms of the Father when he says, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. Jesus pursues us by loving us and laying down his life for us even while we were still sinners, even while we were his enemies even when we went astray. Jesus comforts us by virtue of our union with him. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Jesus dwells in us. Why? Because he sends the person of the Holy Spirit to dwell among us at Pentecost. And therefore, the presence of God is with us in a way that is far more uh, expansive than it was for the people of Israel. And so you see, what Jesus Christ does is he takes the wonderful truths of the psalm and he intensifies it by his blood. But the final thing we can say is this. Here, um, David walks through the valley of the shadow of death and the Lord is with him. Jesus is not just with us. He actually takes that walk. He himself walks through the valley of the shadow of death when he hangs upon a cross so that we would be completely spared from it, so that we would be resurrected from it. He prepares a table for us in heaven, and he invites us to the marriage supper of the Lamb of Revelation 19. You know, uh, some Old Testament passages, uh, if I'm going to be completely honest with you, when I'm preaching, uh, sometimes it's hard to see the connection to Jesus, and <laughs> I'm like, all right, so what does this say about Jesus in the gospel? Psalm 23 is not one of those passages. Uh, Psalm 23 just drips with the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's like, um, have you ever done those easy mazes, I think designed for children, where no matter what path you follow, it always gets you to the goal? Like, you can't mess up. Uh, Psalm 23 is a little bit like that. No matter what string you pull on, no matter what path you follow, whatever, no matter what verse you see here, it's so clearly pointing to who Jesus is and what he has done for us on the cross. Jesus is the only reason goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our lives. Jesus is the only reason we can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So here's what we should consider then. If David only had partial knowledge of the kind of shepherd and friend he had, and yet was able to say, I will fear no evil, then what could a fuller understanding or a fuller knowledge of who God is after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what can that potentially do to our fears? 
There's a famous preacher, Charles Spurgeon, once said he observed a child who once was uh, at perfect peace on a boat in the midst of like the most dangerous storm. And virtually everybody else on that ship was deathly afraid that they were going to die because the ship is tossing to and fro. And this child is just kind of perfectly happy and at peace. And someone asked this child, why are you so comfortable? Why are you so at peace? Why are you so happy? And the child's response is, my father is the captain. He knows how to manage. This little child had confidence in his father that made him feel safe and secure. This child's knowledge was probably only partial uh, in terms of what his father was capable of, and yet it was good enough for him to feel at peace. I think that's a bit like David in this psalm. But what if this child knew something about his father? What if he knew his father actually had superpowers and could control the weather and make the weather stop? That's another level of security, right? David knew uh, the Lord and it gave him confidence, the confidence he needed to overcome fear. Uh, We know everything David does, but far more. We know how much more loving, how much more gracious, how much more powerful, how much uh, the extent in which God would go to bring us out of the valley of the shadow of death, to raise us to new life because of the gospel, because of Jesus Christ. And therefore, what could that do for our fears? You know, I think the only way to make something like this a little bit less abstract is, uh, you know, there's there's different kinds of knowledge. There's like an intellectual knowledge, but there's like a deep experiential knowledge. A couple of us, we are doing Bible study on Ephesians, uh, the book of Ephesians, and Ephesians 3 points that out so well. Uh, The Psalms are not meant to be taught. The The Psalms are meant to be sung, to be prayed through. So next time you feel anxiety, whether anxiety over job, anxiety over future, anxiety over a decision you have to make, anxiety over lack of finances, uh, by the way, it's tax season, right? So maybe you owe a lot of money in taxes. Maybe that stirs up some kind of uh, anxiety. Whatever anxieties you feel, maybe anxiety about a relationship, maybe anxiety about a confrontation, anxiety about something that's not going well in your life, try it. Try it. Praying through Psalm 23. Try reciting Psalm 23. Try reading it and summarizing it and applying it to your own situation. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want more finances. I shall not want more control. I shall not want um, a better job. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He gives me rest for my soul. He leads me beside still waters. He's the one that fills me with life, not these other things. He restores my soul. I struggle with my sin so much I'm tempted to stray, but his kindness will bring me back to him. And therefore my confidence is not in the quality of my faith, but in the quality of my Savior. Paraphrase this psalm next time you go through fears. Pray through it and see what that does to your fears. I do pray uh, that the Holy Spirit would bring these words to life into our hearts when we feel anxiety. And I encourage you to use it as a tool in your own lives. Let's pray together.